still thought, oh, fuck, I've been shot. Can't do my job. I really hope I'm not paralyzed. I'm still alive. All these little very clear moments of clarity that you have in your head. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Adrian Humphreys is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment. He signed up for the regular army as a signaller in 2002 and joined 4 RAR Bracket Commando in 2005, which became known as the 2nd Commando Regiment during his service. Adrian spoke to Angus Horden about his seven deployments, combat stories in the Middle East, and his journey in Special Forces. I'm Angus Horden, and in our studio today, we are joined with Adrian Humphreys, Adrian, welcome to Life on the Line. No worries, Angus. Thanks for having me. So, Adrian, where were you born? I was born in Camperdown, Sydney. Moved to Raymond Terrace shortly after that. My father discharged from the Air Force out at Williamstown, and we settled in Raymond Terrace, which is a town nearby, and I grew up there. The area that we moved to was defence housing back in the day. I'm talking the early 80s, but between 8 and 10, they sold it all, and we sort of found ourselves living in the middle of housing commission, so the neighbourhood got pretty rough overnight. Do your family have a military history or association? Yeah, we've got one that heads right back to the Indian Wars and the Napoleonic Wars on my mother's side. Father served in the Vietnam War. He was part of the RAF detachment at Ubon in Thailand. His father and his uh, stepfather both served in World War II, stepfather on the Canberra, his biological father in the 6th Division. On my mother's side, her uncle, my great-uncle, was prisoner of war, taken prisoner of war at Singapore when he was 19. Her lineage, we go back to World War One. then. My great-granduncle and my great-grandfather were both in World War One. The maternal side of that lineage, the O'Halloran side, that we've got Joseph O'Halloran back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and we also have French. We had people fighting on both sides of the Napoleonic Wars, I'm pretty sure. Wow, that's a real military heritage. Yeah. My uncle is the family historian and whenever he would discover something of military in nature, I would be the first one he contacted. So so the poor chap that was taken captive up in Singapore, did he survive? He did. So that was Uncle Bruce. Of the four brothers, he was the youngest. He's the only one that saw active service in World War Two, and um, he was taken prisoner in 1942, so a good three and a half years before anyone had seen or heard from him back in the family here in Sydney. Another classic sort of case of never talked about it, just never talked about it, simply went back to the bank that he was working in before the war, continued on, had a family, everyone grew up, second, third generations come along, I'm enlisted in the army as a signaller, and when he found that out, just prior to my first deployment to the Solomon Islands in November 2003, he all of a sudden opened up because evidently he'd been a signaller, fighting um, sort of rearguard actions to the north of Singapore, that's how he was captured, they were surrounded, that particular element. I then deployed to the Solomon Islands late 2003, and I think maybe a matter of days or weeks prior to my return in March 2004, he had a severe hemorrhage and, and um, 
passed away. So it was a shame that we sort of found this connection and then I had to leave and I um, was looking forward to sort of sharing it with sharing him. Sharing it, yeah, yeah, expanding on it with him. Great, at least you had the opportunity to tell him and, and you've got that history, but sad you didn't have more with him. Yeah. And tell us about the guy that was on the Canberra. So was he on board when she was sunk? Yeah, he was. He's the one that always used to tell us it was the Americans that hit them, which turned out to be true. The Americans hit the Canberra first with the first initial salvo from the USS Chicago that was a ship behind them, the fleet commander. Yeah, great pity. Yeah, he was on the starboard side. He was a six-inch gunner along the starboard side guns and they were hit on the port side, I'm pretty sure. That's why he survived, essentially. Everyone on the port, that's where most of the casualties were externally from that first salvo from the Chicago. Canberra was lit up by spotlights from the Japanese cruisers, three Japanese cruisers. It had been observed and identified by a Japanese float plane even whilst flying at night. When it was lit up with the lights, it was hit, mortally wounded, and out of the fight straight away. Again, me as a child, really into my military history. I'm given a book at eight years of age, The Lost Ships of Guadalcanal. I read it from cover to cover and then hit up my, you know, all excited, going hit up my grandfather to tell me his story. And that's when he first told me, no, you know, that crusty holds, he was, a, he was a professional fisherman both before and after the war. So he had a lot of, he was a pretty hard bitten kind of bloke, but he just gave me that stink eye and went, oh, the Yanks did hit us. Yeah, and put him out of the fight. And later on in life, you read it again and you're like, that's, yeah, that's probably why they called a ship the USS Canberra when they launched it in 1943 and why the USS, the captain of the USS Chicago committed suicide a few months later. There's all these sort of pointers. It's not historically noted or confirmed, but there's all these sort of little subtle pointers that it is what happened. He leaves Canberra. Was Did he then go and join Shropshire? He did. Yep. Was in Tokyo Bay the day that unconditional surrender was signed. You know, it's funny. My dad was on Shropshire. He well, probably knew him. A good mate of mine in the unit with me. I happened to mention it one night randomly at his auntie's place of all places. His mother was also there and they both lit up because the chaplain in the high school that they went to or a school that they went to as children was the chaplain on the Shropshire. That wasn't Cocky Roach, was it? The, whoever he the, was the Catholic, you know, yep. what they call Sinbos and I met him yep. years ago. That's that'd be him then. And I can see that you've got this amazing family of this incredible military heritage which you continue to serve. So with all that history, I can well imagine that that probably was part inspiration for you joining up. The one I missed as well, my older brother. That was actually probably the key moment. My older brother enlisted at 17 when I was six years old. I vividly remember heading to Kapuka to watch him march out upon his graduation from recruit training. And at six years old, that was me done. That was decision point at that point. Like it was never going to be anything else. I don't think it was a conscious, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life decision, but it was certainly a one of those pivotal moments, the one I can sort of think back the earliest to. Adrian, it's interesting, again, another parallel, like you mentioned Kapuka, my son has just left Kapuka from yeah. doing his basic training. So I can see you being moved by watching your brother on that passing out parade at Kapuka as I was for my son. That's what takes you to the military. So so how old are you? You're... I'm 36 now, yeah. And how old were you at, at Kapuka? Six. Oh, sorry, when I, when I went through Kapuka, I was 18. Okay. Just turned 18. So let's start talking about those early years in the Army of you joining up. Yeah, so joined up, enlisted into the Royal Australian Corps of Signals as a communications specialist. They've got, they have four or five main EC employment categories, everything from information systems like computers through to technicians of the equipment, electronic warfare and communications specialists. And that was the one I enlisted into April 30th, 2002. 
Uh, from there, yeah, six weeks at Kapuka. Went through all that, got down to the School of Signals at, at Watsonia there in Melbourne, conduct my initial employment training. They're long courses for specialist courses of that nature. I didn't commence mine, or there was a pre-course, a combat signal course, and then from there there was maybe a four to six week gap and we then commenced our communications specialist training, that actual course. I marched out of there into my first unit, which was the 130th Signal Squadron. And I understand your first posting was to the Solomons. We were the second rotation into that force element. It was a degree of civil unrest in some fashion, very similar. The words Bougainville kept getting thrown around by the old troop sergeants and the warrant officers that were the, they'd been around, I suppose, my age or my generation when they themselves were deployed to Bougainville. Uh, ultimately, it came down to an extension of not even criminal activity. It was, it was gangs, gang-related, inter-tribal, inter-generational sort of conflict, very limited. And thus, when we received the word or the ultimately the, the warning order to go over there, there were a series of briefs on it for us, for the whole squadron to get us up to speed in what actually was happening. A peacekeeping role up there, but yeah. still dangerous because these gangs are armed. So even by the time we got there in the second um, rotation, there wasn't a consistent enemy presence or threat. And I'm, I'm sort of looking at it now through the lens of all the other deployments I've done, but volatile, Nonetheless, there was a particular responsibility as communication specialists that we had to go out twice a day or twice a week to a retrain station in the town to check on batteries, check on operations, check on check it's clean and so on and so forth. It was co-located with a section of infantry from Tonga on one of the hills overlooking the town. They wanted us to go out there unarmed, just drive into town. And even at 19, I insisted on having my weapons signed out from the armory, which annoyed the QEs, heaven forbid they do their job. And I just simply thought I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. I don't know what for, because everyone looks pretty docile when you drive around all smiling, but there were occasions where they just would riot at the drop of a hat and damage a lot of infrastructure through the town. Did anything else really happen in that Solomon's deployment? It was more the culture shock. Again, one of the responsibilities of the radio troop were to maintain communications detachments over on the island of Malaita. Three of them, Aoki, Malu and Atori. And you'd cycle through there four weeks on. I think early January, I cycled into one of those, rotated into one. It was myself, I was 19 or just turned 20. And my detachment commander was my mate who was 21. So that consisted of the communications detachment at this forward air refueling point at Aoki. All of a sudden, you're not culture shocked to the point of paralysis on your part, but it's your first exposure to the third world, first exposure to the mortality rate of the third world, the disease rate, and how common it is. So personally, I don't know if it was, you'd call it post-traumatic growth to a sense, but certainly there were scenes and things I've witnessed or was a part of that they now, I now know them to be traumatic. You sort of look back at them through that sort of lens. You come back eventually to Australia and there's this period where you decide that, you know, you're going to leave the signals and sort of gravitate towards the commando regiment. Prior to that deployment, there was a couple of things that had occurred due to our physical location out the back of the base at Holsworthy. It was quite secluded an ideal place for the army or special operations to ultimately set up the initial tactical assault group east compound and a series of ranges on the far side of the airfield. You know, you couldn't think of two more sort of contrasting units in the Australian army. The closest thing to a sort of tier one special operations element that we have backing onto a logistical SIG squadron. It's just chalk and cheese. I remember distinctly one morning I was 
sweeping out a bay or some sort of menial task and I looked out over the airfield and as I looked out this strip of tarmac that stretches out beyond our initial fence the entire land platoon the assault land platoon of Tag East rolled past in the Nissan patrols back then SPVs grade order heavy gas masks bolt cutters hacksaw saws uh, broco all the gear all the gear just hanging off them and hanging off the car and they were about to whip around and accelerate up and do a hit on the moe house and i just saw these dudes roll past and just looked at them and went who the fuck is that i had no real awareness or education in commandos at that point two of my friends had posted directly to the signal squadron there but even they were really coy i think because we were all younger. But their signalers attached to the commandos, they're not commandos. No, yeah, yeah that's big right. difference. Once I saw that, I started just harping on them for more info. Progressively, both of my friends became Beret-qualified signalers as well. So it was the three of us ultimately. And just on that, so when you say Beret, I mean it's to gain the Green Beret. Yeah, correct. Back then there was categories of employment within the commando or within a your qualified sort of roles. Beret qualified medic, Beret qualified recovery mechanics from Ramey, Beret qualified intelligence. Uh, you were known as a category B. So let's talk about the selection that you go through in order to become a signaler for the commandos because the commando training is rigorous, it's hard, it's mental, it's physical. I commenced that application process and, and went through the administrative processes to just to get to the point where you can have a crack at the entry test. Passed it with the intent of attempting the selection course or the commando training course commencing next the following February. A good friend of mine who was a medic in the unit at the time and still a good friend of mine, previous life he'd been recon in one hour, an infantry battalion in Townsville. You know, I had a complete non-infantry background. So as far as the soldiers fives and the hot tips and all that sort of thing, it predominantly came from him being squared away in the bush with your navigation, your field craft. That was where I suppose you'd say I had a, an unorthodox approach or I found myself having one. It wasn't the straightforward join infantry, a couple of years in a rifle platoon, a couple of support courses, move into or attempt or get time up in a recon platoon or in snipers at an infantry battalion. That's the general, well, sorry, that's a very common route for most guys coming onto the courses. Just backtracking a couple, it gets to New Year's Eve, uh, 2004. Tsunamis just hit Indonesia. I've gotten a recall. This rapid deployment SIG unit evidently is living up to its name and we are being rapidly deployed to Bandar Aceh. So we're all keyed up and G'd up, ready to go back to Sydney, working day and night to get all our gear ready. But every afternoon I was starting to feel quite unwell and it had this sort of 24-hour cycle to it. And ultimately I wound up early January. Again, I was with my medic friend from the unit. We were hanging out because we had nothing else to do prior to our deployment. We had about maybe 48 hours. I became quite unwell again, down for the count. We were in Chatswood, Westfield, Chatswood of all places. He pretty much beelined me from Chatswood right back to the Army Hospital at Holsworthy. Oh, and that's a bit of a drive. I was in a bad way. My temperature had spiked up to like something like 41 degrees. From there, I was transferred to Liverpool Hospital, just this constant cycle of blood tests, pathology, to see what was going on. And ultimately, it turned out I'd contracted malaria. We're talking near 12 months previously, February, in the Solomon Islands, and I've going down for the count with malaria and hence the sickness, the, the cycle of sickness in the afternoons and whatever else, something had triggered it. It had been dormant in my system, but something around that period of time had triggered it. I effectively, yeah, wound up in hospital for a good week and a half. I missed the deployment. I missed starting the commando training cycle course. Like I missed sort of both options that I was um, excited about. 
took the better part of that year, 2005, to recover not only from the illness and how it sort of wasted away a lot of mass. I lost seven kilos in five days or something yeah, like that. And all your momentum of where you were going. Start again, yeah. pretty much. Um, and got onto a, the second CTC being run that year, which was in October or September. Passed the course. It took place at Singleton, so he spent a good sort of near on five weeks along with the Special Forces Weapons course at the end of it. Returning to Holsworthy to commence the Commando Urban Operations course. Uh, I was in the day two, I think, of that course, and the senior instructor was called by my ops officer at, at 145 at that point, and I was recalled back to the unit to be on the communications detachment that, again, was being rapidly deployed to support a medical detachment heading over to Pakistan in the wake of a ma like a massive earthquake that had hit, I think, around October of that year. That was Operation Pakistan Assist, yeah. right. Yeah, I remember the good work and the good press, the Australian medical team in particular got yeah. over there. So how long were you in Pakistan for? Deployment wound up being five months, but I got over there, you're part of the initial deployment. They wanted to downsize somewhere at some point, someone at some point made the decision we have to minimize, I think after the first cycle of heavy weather came through, shut down absolutely everything. We were up in the, I don't know how to describe it, the valley that we were in. And freezing, I understand. Yeah, so that first cycle of weather where it just dropped to mm -hmm. nothing, air ops completely, Blackhawk was the only way in and out, completely denied. You've only got what you've got with you as a detachment, as a camp up there. We had a lot of sickness, uh, altitude sickness as well. So they sought to minimise people up on the mountain and mm -hmm. send unnecessary or superfluous sort of positions back to Australia. I filled one of those positions, much to my dismay. Disappointment. Disappointment, yeah. yeah again, you, I think I was 22. I turned 22 over there. You're really disappointed. But that's the army, you know. That. Yeah, it is. I tried my hardest. So, like, I argued the point and all sorts of insubordinate sort of shit. But um, ultimately, it was you're going home because you're actually due to post into 4th Battalion, 4RR Commando at that point because you've passed this course. Your priority for your career is to get back on those line of courses and recommence it and finish them. So you come back. And I understand the following year there's action for you. That rolled into 2006. Mm. and it, That was uh, Timor? Yeah, May 2006. So I commenced the year and I was straight back into the courses, basic parachuting course in February down at Nowra, returned and started a second commando urban operations course in March, finished that up and rolled straight into the special forces comms course. And it was during that course one afternoon, maybe a week and a half into it. Names were called out at afternoon points. They just simply said, get down to Alpha Company and find out where your name is on the board and then go see whoever's in charge of the people on that board. That was the uh, platoon commander, platoon sergeant. The company was being put on standby for a situation that was developing in Timor. So this is Operation Astute in 2006. Yeah. At that point, there was no op or name for it. We were staging, we were pushing forward to Darwin. First experience of deploying with a special operations element and the difference therein as far as the, the expeditionary sort of nature of the unit or the attitude. It's, it's um, fight, light, freeze at night, I suppose, is the overall attitude. And that is a, you see that, the influence of that sort of attitude or that reflection in everything from the way the unit rapidly deploys, rapidly has gear all ready to go. And so how would you rate your experience in Timor? How did it go for you? Timor, massive learning curve. I've got a lot of second chances. My report afterwards was in hindsight, so yeah, to be totally honest, in hindsight, we wouldn't have taken you. And I went to defend myself, but then I thought of, I thought actually, no, no, I wouldn't. 
I was a fucking liability at some point. So and that was that from your signalling capacity or your soldiering capacity or probably soldering. Signalling I was pretty passionate about, but uh, it was soldering and maturity. It's an irony that you hit that point where you understand why special operations wants someone who's ideally in their mid to late twenties. That but maturity. The, that maturity. But then also, would you be that? Would I be that mature if I hadn't gotten into special operations so early at that stage? You grow up pretty quick because you've got some hard, you work for some hard people. Let's leave Timor and jump ahead to 2007. You've been in the army now for what, like half a decade. You've been deployed what, three times and you're now a commando. You must have been happy with your career to date, but I understand you were really itching to go to the big show in the Middle East. September 2005, the Special Forces Task Group rotated through for roughly a 12 month period. And then within that 12 month period, three rotations of troops went through. That wound up September to or October 2006. Even whilst we were in Timor, the scuttlebutt was about us having to get back to Australia in time to be able to deploy in 2000 and you know get back and go straight back out again. Um, and that wasn't to be the case. We simply just shut down. So there were a lot of people disappointed. Disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. Timor was a massive learning curve in a lot of different ways, or a bloodening, or a maturing of a lot of young blokes, a lot of young people, the unit. So as a result, it was almost like a proving ground without the extreme sort of consequences that come with Afghanistan. Got back, 2006 rolls into 2007. Sorry, late 2006 though, <laughs> we get put on standby for Fiji. Um, that was sort of the major sort of incident of note during that deployment was the loss of the Black Hawk with two members killed in action on it. I wasn't part of the company that was on the boat. There was a seaborne option and an airborne option, and the unit was effectively split into two different options for the force commander. Air option remained at Holsworthy, ready to stage out of Richmond, and um, seaborne went on, I think it was the Canimbla. So that was another really late, I don't know, hurrah, rolling into December in 2006. Coming back to the unit in February 2007, I started up in a new SIG troop, Bravo SIG troop, working for Bravo Company. At one point there, I was the only SIG in that troop for a few months while still conducting all the exercises and the operational tempo or the requirements of that operational tempo. That would have been very demanding. That was very demanding. One little thing I remember from it, brushing my teeth, my gums would continuously bleed. I remember going to the dental and saying there's something up, what's wrong effectively? And she just sort of, after questioning me and examining me she said are you stressed out right now and i said yeah <laughs> yeah not like I, and I sort of unloaded on this poor bloody dental nurse like what's been going on she went well it's probably stress if you're under high stress sometimes your gums recede and they bleed easily and was that it yeah it was it wow yeah we have to as part of being the online force element you have to be able to tick off on whatever option of insertion or terrain or scenarios called opo serials that the government may ask of you or that we can go our commanders can go to the government with should they need us and go we can we're capable of this 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 and this we've just trained in it for the last 12 months or so i remember being up at canungra doing the close country stuff close country jungle warfare oh again i was providing that communication support to everyone i couldn't do any training myself because i was the only guy in the troop and that's when word came through that the special operations task group was being redeployed to afghanistan back to tarankout in uruzgan province the alpha was leading the charge on that one and we'd rotate in after them they finished up in August as part of Bravo. I rotated in. We became the priority then for manning and equipment and training. So Adrian, you were deployed to Afghanistan four times, 2007, 9, 11, and 12. 
and your deployments are typically for this six-month period. So rather than getting specific about a particular deployment, can you share with us some of those experiences of fear or danger, laughter or enjoyment or great mateship over that time that you recall? First two experiences of combat were, I wouldn't say underwhelming, but anticlimactic in the sense that um, I didn't actually have an idea of how everything was going to go as such. It was just something because I was a communications specialist and three weeks prior to even stepping off on our first operation, I was jumping through my ass, getting gear squared away, getting my car squared away. So you've all of a sudden find yourself out on the tarmac heading out on these large, in a large formation of vehicles around 2007, that was the way we did business. Uh, all of a sudden you're in the desert and you're pushing the gun to the left and to the right. You're not only in the uh, vehicle as a communication specialist, you're also on a gun and have additional responsibilities. So two days into our initial patrol, which was you know, funnily, euphemistically enough, called a, a nursery patrol, where we're introduced to the terrain, introduced to the operating area. A supposedly safer patrol. Safer patrol. We got lit up. The entire company got lit up. One of the platoons had dismounted to conduct a clearance through this particularly sort of canalising sort of terrain down into this what we call the Greenbelt populated area. Whilst they were doing that unknowingly to us, enemy, Taliban, whatever you want to call them, they'd spent the entire day moving into positions all over this mountain, this sort of feature complex to our front, where the remainder of our call sign was sort of spread out in vehicle positions. As that platoon remounted their vehicles and commenced to drive back up this pass effectively whilst we remained in an overwatch position, we were just massively engaged by all these guys. It was, uh, looking back, all the indicators were there, radio, transmissions, women and children leaving the green belt, all these indicators, something's up, they're completely lost on you. And even right up to uh, all of them yelling out Allah Akbar on their icons prior to kicking it off, all of them happened, but we were oblivious to the most part, so we... With respect, you weren't used to listening or looking for those things yeah. at that stage. Yeah, so off it kicks and we're all sort of pinned down. And we're talking a lot of cars here and then a lot of guys getting on the 50s and 58s, 84s, everything, and starting to lay it back into this, this side of these series of sort of mountains to our front. And are they calling to you to signal for air support? Or? No, I knew, given my past performance in Timor and around the unit in general, this is the one thing I couldn't fail. So off I sprinted to my car. In my vehicle, the executive officer was sort of the commander of the vehicle executive officer of the company so i just sort of grab him in the midst of all this and i just i grab him and tell him i've got to get my radio i've got to get to the radios um because at that point a lot of us were pinned down behind the engine blocks of all the respective vehicles as they were lined out and he's just sort of looked at me very blankly and gone then very quietly just gone we'll go and i've looked at him and gone okay i'll go then didn't even really time it an intelligence specialist that was attached to us happened to be in our vehicle on picket when all this kicked off. So this poor bastard's just hammering, blindly hammering this 50 cal into the side of this mountain. Even when I yelled at him to throw smoke or yelled at him to get his attention. He's too engaged. No, he turned and looked at me and didn't cease firing. He's firing in one direction and he's looking at me. And he had like, he looked like a basset hound. All the color had drained out of his face. I go to take off just to run to our car. It's maybe 15 meters. As I go up and take those first couple of steps out, I get coat hanging back. In. And it's one of those moments, you'll have tons of them, moments of sort of crisis or points. We have these moments that their duration is for me like a matter of hundreds of a second, but they're very Seems sort of right, clear. Yeah. And I just thought, oh shit, I've been shot. And this is what it feels like, the force of it. And I've gone, my legs have gone up and I've been dragged in behind. The XO, and there was someone else as well, as I took off, they saw an RPG coming in and it sort of whistled past us. I didn't hear it. 
an RPG, you either hear a, you hear a whoosh, but if you hear it once it's gone past, you, you can hear a sizzle. It's like a hiss because of the propellant. So I just sort of heard this hiss, like off to down and, that and what, He's reached out and pulled you back. He saw it coming and grabbed me and pulled me. And saved your life. Reefed me back in. I don't, maybe, but at the time I was just, I was thought, fuck, I've been shot. Still thought, oh, fuck, I've been shot. Can't do my job. I really hope I'm not paralyzed. I'm still alive. All these little very clear moments of clarity that you have in your head. At any rate, they threw smoke, however that, however much you think that works. You've got to put in a shitload of smoke. You just threw this random arbitrary smoke grenade out between the two vehicles. I then ran to my vehicle. Intelligence specialist is still up in the car going apeshit on the 50. I've got to get into the cupola. My vehicles, my radios are down at his feet. Get to the point where I'm, in spite of everything that's going on, fire, 84s, all manner of cacophony. I have to get up on the roof. I have to get up on the shell of the, the frame of the cupola and coax him out because the gun stopped firing, ran out of ammo. He didn't even change it. His fingers were just, he was just clenched on the gun. And I had to sort of coax him out of the vehicle, talking softly to him while still under fire. I got him out. I don't know what happened to him at that point. I jumped in to the vehicle, turned on all the radios, ready to go, ready to do my thing. And what had occurred was vehicles have a, certain vehicles had an uh, electronic countermeasures capability. In the event of a tick or a gunfight, whatever the case may be, all ECM is to be turned off by the operator so we can still, we can still transmit on our radios. Because of the nature of this engagement, we were ambushed, no one had turned their ECM off. So all my signals were at zero on all my radios. And I've just sat there again, shit's pinging off the vehicle. I'm just sort of sitting bobbed down in this cupola. Not being able to do what you Not need to do. Not being able to do it. And then so the very last means that I had my in extremist means was a mobile phone and Iridium they're called, that's the brand, globally linked mobile phone. I grab that, I dial in the SOC C back at the camp. I get on the phone to them and it was like something out of Transformers had just been released at the time and the JTAC and there's a scene where a guy's trying to call in to get air support and he's got this Indian telemarketer on the other side. <laughs> it was like that. I had this completely, I don't know what to describe. Dork. I had a dork on the other end of the line just placidly. Or How were you? Were you in control of yourself? I was. Are you calm? I, was, I, was, I wouldn't say calm, but I knew I... But you were directing your speech. And this yeah. guy is just not understanding the gravity of the situation. Yeah, he's like, why aren't you and calling you're trying the to get him off? Yeah, get off the line and put me in touch with someone who can do something. Pretty much, and I could feel it rising in my throat. I said, if I do start yelling at him, I'm going to be done. So I just very calmly went, mate, we're under fire. No one's turned. Like you're just trying to explain yeah. it to. Him. From there, we had to go to secure, and part of that process of going secure is that having this automated female American voice in your ear and again another surreal moment you're just waiting for this call to go secure while rounds are hitting your car and all sorts of like shit is still going on and you've got this american voice in your ear saying secure call in progress please stand by secure call in progress please stand by and you're just like fuck could this get any worse this is not how i saw it all going down from there it goes secure again and in that time when old mate's voice came back on, that's when I unleashed on him and just said, put the opso on effectively. My executive officer out on the ground wants to talk to the ops officer back there to get shit sorted. The JTACs, evidently when you exchange stories afterwards, the series of JTACs that we had throughout the force element, they had the exact same drama trying to get air on station. Everyone's ECMs completely wiped it out. So you do succeed in getting the air support? It took a long time to get it yeah. and the immediate threat had it passed. surpassed. Yeah, so it was only organic sort of fire support and weapon systems that sort of 
put down enough of a wall of fire. So that could suppress them yeah. and you guys could get out in good order still? Pretty much. It was an impressive moment, I suppose. We were vehicle mounted. We'd never rolled as a massive company in those vehicles prior to training. We hadn't trained for it. We'd done some limited vehicle training and heavy weapons training, both separate to each other. So to do an impromptu sort of break yeah. contact in vehicles, peeling left progressively, doing a, a sort of little recon team move in vehicles en masse out of this position that we're in while still keeping fire up, uh, I remember seeing it because one of our vehicles was one of the first to go. Looking back, I turned the turret around by that point. Once they'd gotten comms, I hooked in with the 50 as well, with the 50 that I had. You were able to wrestle it off your mate. Who... Well, I, I got him out of it, but again, it was another frustrating one. I'd gotten comms. It's sort of like, okay, I've done my job. What do I do now? And like, well, we're getting shot at, so start shooting back. I jump on the 50 and click dead man's click because he's run out of ammo. And I'm like, again, you have to just change out the liner. But that was another one too, a training or a trainingism that you call. A trainingism on a 50 cal is to rack it and then count to 10 slowly before you open the feed tray to see what the stoppage is. And I did that. I racked it in the middle of shit hitting my car in the middle of 84s in the middle of this ambush. I've racked it, started counting out loud, one, 1,000, two, and then you just realize how idiotic you look and sound. And like that was something created by some fuckwit and puckapunyal at that moment, whoever that dude is, you don't know who they are, but you're absolutely irate that they ever implemented that safety mechanism into the training. So again, you don't even wait. You just get the new liner on and hook in. That's as far as a personal moment of the difference between training in real time and knowing the difference or you're starting to learn through your experience. But also seeing being in the battle and then getting out first and being able to observe the battle. The unit got out okay? We didn't lose any fellas? No, our the two wounded were one of the platoon commanders and the OC, our officer commanding the company. The platoon commander was hitting the leg and the officer commanding was hitting the ass. Well, that was very lucky. Combat ad nauseum or someone who's experienced it you always sit back after the fact and go, I don't know how anyone else wasn't hit. Adrian, can I ask, do you remember or were you in a position where you were personally firing on someone you could see and saw the effect of that? No. It was um, the so gun. You, so you didn't have that close man-on-man experience, fortunately? No. The second one, the second fight we got into was another ambush again. We, in particular, were the vehicle's line astern that were engaged driving along this road. Closest I got at that point was I could see effectively a, a wall to my immediate right of the vehicle, which prevented my gun, getting your gun down, traversing it low enough to be able to engage. However, I could still see over the top of this sort of low wall or mid-height wall. Field of corn on the other side, and then on the other side of that, you could see enough dust kicking up. You could see the dust kicking up from their point of origin. Like you, that would, you could see where they were, but the amount of fire they were putting in at that immediate phase of that ambush, it, it wound up... Yeah, I wound up duck, have again having ducked down inside the cupola. I realised my job was the radio. The gun was malfunctioning. We needed to get some air on at least. So that was a sort of second experience that occurred in late September on another operation. Adrian, during your service, you overlapped with a number of veterans who we've actually caught up with. You know, some of these names you'd know, like Dr Dan Pronk, who Sharon, our colleague, spoke with. In fact, Mick Bainbridge. Do you remember Mick? Yeah. Mick. Well, Mick was sitting in the same chair that you're sitting in, and <laughs> I was talking to him. Lovely guy. Yep. But, you know, there's Bram Connolly. There's the commando known as H, who Alex has spoken with. You remember these guys? Yeah. You know, back when you are sort of cycling through the tempo of the unit, particularly from 2006 onwards, all these names that you just mentioned, they're not, they're not identities at that stage. They're just... Regular guys. I did a couple of tours with Dan, good friends, a couple of big photos that have sort of been commonly spread around about him. I took them. A couple of the patrols we went on in 2009, vehicle patrols or operations we went on that were vehicle mounted, he, he was able to jump on our vehicle as 
just in the commander's seat and others he was in the, the rear gun on the Bushmaster behind us. Look, you've been the signaler or chook as you're affectionately known as. You would have been the fly on the wall in quite a lot of events and actually been caught up in the action yourself. Can you talk to us about Luke Worsley and sadly the night he was killed? You just mentioned being a fly on the wall, I suppose that is a, a key example of a time that I was. That was the first part of Angus Horden's conversation with Adrian Humphreys. Volume 2 is out tomorrow. It picks up right away with Adrian's recount of the night Luke Worsley was killed. The rest of the episode is full of action, tragedy and deep reflection. Here's a clip. Fallen Angel was called across the net. That completely changes the mission to recovery of the aircraft and personnel. Listen to some of the other commando stories mentioned today in our previous episodes. From Season 2, listen to number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1. Certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment, and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before, and also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and, and you simply can't. And number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 2. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. In Season 3, also check out number 44, Mick Bainbridge. You know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help, and when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. Lessons of a Combat Doctor with Dr Dan Pronk. But I never had any doubt or second guessing. So mentally that was like, hang on, I got this. Yeah, I'm, I'm injured. Everyone's injured. I'm losing weight. Everyone's losing weight. We're all broken. We're all sleep deprived, food deprived. But it was from then on in, I just I decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on or they physically removed me from the course, that I was going to get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell. Number 47, Bram Connolly. Well, these guys didn't ask my permission. They just shot him. 1,400 metres, clean kill, and the bomb stopped. And number 54, H, volume one. It's, we're going through that door, or we're sliding down that rope, or we're blowing this, or we're diving in here, or flying in there, or whatever, and this is it. It doesn't matter how many of us come out. Volume two. Only seconds ago, braced yourself mentally that, you know, you're about to die. You've accepted that. And volume three. There's nothing else in this world ever that will replace when you live and breathe inside a special operations team. There's nothing. For pictures of Adrian on deployment, look us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Subscribe to us on YouTube, in your podcast app, and via our website to never miss an episode, including the rest of Adrian's story. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.